Hello, I'm Greg, and welcome to a Talkback episode for Walk the Earth number 9. Walk the Earth 9 was originally released in the early part of February 2014. Its uh, question, its point, I suppose you'd say, for that particular episode, was whether we can call a church a home if children must know their place within its walls. So tying back a little bit to the last Talkback, an inappropriate conversations episode looking at Uh, childhood and nostalgia and the way I would play as a child and the way I shared the active play and imagination with my kids. Uh, This is taking a look at children in the church and among the things that led us to leave one church and seek a different church home was the attitude and the mindset toward children in the church. It seems a little bit unusual for me to begin a talkback episode of any sort with a scripture reading, but I think at least for a Walk the Earth episode, it kind of makes some sense. Of the two podcasts that share the feed at inappropriateconversations.org, one of them, the namesake of all this, the original podcast that I put out, Inappropriate Conversations, deals with the often uncomfortable intersections between politics, religion, sex, drugs, rock and roll, all sorts of things that are not for dinner topics, as they say. And Walk the Earth was built upon the premise of a, of a family that had a relationship with a church and a denomination for multiple decades Uh, having to seek new answers, because the answers we were getting from what at that time was our current church home were no longer satisfactory, including answers about some of the really basic things of, you know, Christianity. The philosophy of Jesus, if you will, had come into question multiple times in the congregation that we left behind. Now, if I were to share a passage from Matthew chapter 25, with Jesus speaking all the way through it, verses 31 through 46, the final judgment, the great judgment, as it's often called, I'm well aware of the fact that sharing these verses would be a repeat. It's a repeat of the, you know, opening the scriptures episode from September of 2014, It's a repeat from, frankly, the very first year of Inappropriate Conversations, this scripture passage being part of a short story that I shared a chapter of in Inappropriate Conversations number five, probably coming out early April of 2010. All of these episodes can, of course, be found at inappropriateconversations.org, where the same RSS feed is used for both Inappropriate Conversations and for Walk the Earth episodes. Fair enough. Even more recently, even as recently as about a year ago, when I shared the complete, um, the the author's novella called Some Assembly Required, I put that out in a chapter-by-chapter serialized form in the first half of 2020, and this is from chapter 7 of that. So it may be enough to say that I know I'm repeating myself a little bit, covering material that I've shared before, but I think the argument that I would make, in light of what's happening Uh, Across the nation, in states where there's Republican governors and Republicans in in control of both houses of state government, we're seeing a lot of this. And it's worth reminding people who uh, very loudly proclaim their Christianity as conservative political actors that if you want to claim Christianity, if you want to claim that you're part of a Christian nation or that in some ways you're leading a Christian nation, then it makes a lot of sense to pay careful attention to things that Jesus said. If Jesus, for example, were to be making a claim that, you know, if you don't do the things I'm telling you, you will be sent to eternal punishment. When Jesus makes references to things like gnashing of the teeth, 
we'd be wise to take his counsel and avoid doing those things. And yet, in the state of Georgia, uh, as I'm making this recording, they are moving forward with legislation that would not just restrict early voting and shorten the amount of hours available for people to vote and put tight rules around any sort of absentee ballot voting to try to force as many people as possible to show up at the polls at the same time to create a traffic jam and long lines at the polls, which I think you would have to be positively naive to not draw the easy and obvious conclusion that the intent is to discourage people from putting up with the unmitigated hassle of voting. Now, of course, this isn't everywhere. If you lived in a county in a state like Georgia where there was a fairly small rural population, then one polling place for the county or even two, three, four polling places for the county would would keep your lines low because your population is low. But if you impose some of those same sort of strictures in a place like metropolitan Atlanta, you're guaranteeing brutally long lines. I don't believe that an American citizen should be called upon to stand in line to vote for three, four, five, six, seven, eight hours. And I don't believe that it's in any way moral or ethical or Christian to make it impossible for somebody who is willing to wait that long to exercise their constitutional right to vote, that that person should be denied food and drink. And that is exactly what George is doing. Making it a criminal offense for you to free of charge give a bottle of water to somebody who is struggling while waiting in an hours-long line to vote. That is a criminal act if the state of Georgia and uh, has its way and its governor signs this idea into law. So before I get into a talkback episode from the very early part of the Walk the Earth series, talking about the way children are sometimes regarded in the church, and the problem that can happen if we ignore Jesus's attitude toward kids and forge our own attitude toward kids and how they act, and do so in the name of Jesus, basically putting our words in his mouth. I mean, these are very dangerous games. People are playing with a God that those same people have a tendency to believe is really totally comfortable with smiting people into some sort of eternal damnation. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes as King and all the angels with him, he will sit on his royal throne and the people of all the nations will be gathered before him. Then he will divide them into two groups just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the righteous people at his right and the others at his left. Then the king will say to the people on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Come and possess the kingdom which has been prepared for you ever since the creation of the world. I was hungry, and you fed me. Thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you received me in your homes. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. In prison, and you visited me. The righteousness will then answer him, When, Lord, did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you in our homes, or naked and clothe you? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? The king will reply, I tell you, whenever you did this for one of the least important of these followers of mine, you did it for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Away from me. You, under God's curse, away to the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry, but you would not feed me. Thirsty, but you would not give me a drink. 
I was a stranger, but you would not welcome me in your homes. Naked, but you would not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, but you would not take care of me. Then they will answer him. When, Lord, did we ever see you, hungry or thirsty or a stranger, or naked or sick in prison, and we would not help you? The king will reply, I tell you, whenever you refuse to help, one of the least important ones, you refuse to help me. Then these, then, will be sent off to eternal punishment, but the righteousness will go to eternal life. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. My take on this is really very simple. I'm going to speak a lot less than Jesus spoke in that passage. Just to underline the idea, though, that, first off, we don't get to decide who Jesus might decide in his worldview are followers of his. We don't get to decide who is the most important of his followers. We don't get to decide who is the least important of his followers. That is not the point of what Jesus is preaching. What he's preaching is that when you reach out and help someone who is in need, when you lift people up instead of pushing them down, you are doing what the Lord commands, and therefore it is as if you are acting directly in relationship with Jesus, according to Jesus, at that time and in that moment of need. So I wonder what might happen if you were an elected official in the state of Georgia, and you weren't only failing completely to give somebody thirsty a drink, or give them some food if they're hungry, or provide them any other sort of comfort if they've been waiting in a line for several hours, because the elected officials in the state in which they live are so passionate about disenfranchising them, taking away their right to vote, discouraging them in any way from you know, practicing the rights of citizens to cast a vote in elections, that they would be willing not only to take away that food and drink, but to place into prison anyone who would freely offer it? This is extra level flirting with the great judgment. Because Jesus was willing to, to cast into an eternal punishment people who refused to offer a drink to somebody in a situation like being forced by the political machinations of the elected officials in your state to wait in a six, seven, eight hour line. What do you think Jesus would do with those same elected officials who not only did not offer him a drink, but threatened to imprison anyone who would presume to do so out of the kindness of their heart, where the kindness of their heart is a reflection of a response to the grace that has been received by the believer and extending that grace to other people. Standing in the way of grace, trying to clamp down grace, squeeze the very life out of grace, is where so many politically active Christians have aligned themselves in the year 2021. Not just in states like Georgia, but Georgia is an excellent example of the problem, of the cancer that is growing malignantly out of control within what we call American Christianity today. Thanks for listening. Whether we can call a church a home if children must know their place within its walls. What's she going to do then? Well, 
That's what I've been sitting here contemplating. First, I'm going to deliver this case to Marcellus. Then, basically, I'm just going to walk the earth. What you mean, walk the earth? You know, like Kane in Kung Fu. Walk from place to place, meet people, get in adventures. And how long do you intend to walk the earth? Till God puts me where he wants me to be. And what if you don't do that? If it takes forever, then I'll walk forever. Welcome to Walk the Earth. I'm Greg. I'm going to do something unusual this time and begin this particular episode with a scripture reading. It's somewhat ironic that I've done more inappropriate conversations shows that start with scripture than Walk the Earth shows, but then there's more inappropriate conversation shows on the feed. You can find both Walk the Earth and Inappropriate Conversations at www.inappropriateconversations.org, and both are available on Stitcher at stitcher.com. Let me begin with Mark, chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. Some people brought children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples scolded the people. When Jesus noticed this, he was angry and said to his disciples, Let the children come to me, and do not stop them, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I assure you that whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Then he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on each of them, and blessed them. Earlier in chapter 9, beginning with verse 42, Jesus made another statement about children, talking in this case about the temptation to sin. This is Jesus again speaking. If anyone should cause one of these little ones to lose his faith in me, it would be better for that person to have a large millstone tied around his neck and be thrown into the sea. Words of Jesus in Mark chapter 9, verse 42. And I think, without much more comment, this pretty much answers the question we're facing today. Whether we can call a church a home. That expression we so often hear about, my church home, I'm going to be doing something with my church family. Well, if children are not welcome to participate in the life of the church, then you've got a real problem. So to me, no, you cannot call a church a home. In fact, you probably are misusing the word church if children are not welcome in the sanctuary. And frankly, if children are not welcome everywhere else in the building where there's no risk of danger, it makes sense to keep children away from the boiler room and from the parts of the building where the electrical panel could be located and mischief or danger could occur. But if you're not talking about securing the welfare of the child, then it doesn't make any sense for there to be obsession over controlling the behavior of children. In the first couple of episodes of Walk the Earth, I spoke a little bit about the church that I grew up in. So when I was in that elementary school age, and uh, my family had made a decision that I had the choice between whether to continue going to a Roman Catholic church or to go instead to a United Methodist church. And I went the Protestant route. And part of the reason that I did so is that my experience consistently, Sunday after Sunday, or really, truthfully, Saturday after Saturday, in the Roman Catholic experience, was being told no. My entire relationship with that church was based on what I was not supposed to be doing. I needed to very quickly get up to speed on when I was supposed to stand, when I was supposed to sit, when I was supposed to kneel, when I was supposed to speak, when I was supposed to sing, when I was supposed to be quiet. And it was almost impossible for me to keep all those balls in the air. Now, it's probably that I was not that unusual, a pretty typical kid. And with that many things to keep track of, and seemingly so much at stake, the reputation of my grandmother, and perhaps even my father, 
was at stake if I made a mistake, if I didn't do things just right, if I didn't follow the ritual, or at least that was my perception. So you could come along, in fact, members of my family could come along and say, well, you just misunderstood, you you got it wrong, you drew the wrong message. But I'm a kid, right? Talking about a second and third grader, first grader, whatever message I perceived, if, if I understood it wrong, it's because it was delivered ineffectively, perhaps inappropriately. Compare that to my experience in the church where I actually spent most of my time through school, and I had pretty much free reign. I was okay to wonder. My parents viewed that as a safe environment. So if they were participating in a church meeting and brought me with them, and I chose to wander the halls and look in every classroom and try to begin to get an understanding as a very young child as to what the differences might be between the third and fourth grade class I was going to versus what the junior high room had in it, or even more you know, interesting and at times bewildering what the senior high school room looked like in you know, the middle of the 1970s. The senior high school room looked like a scene that might have been created by the set designer of Hair. It was a very different experience. And at no point was I ever castigated or you know, told I wasn't allowed or told I was doing the wrong thing simply by being in the kitchen of that particular church or being in the gymnasium of that particular church. And that was, to me, a real difference maker. As a child, I felt like I was part of something. And I was part of it to the degree that it wasn't a big deal if when the worship service wasn't going on, I chose to go up and look at what the pulpit was all about or go up and look at what the altar was all about. One of the biggest reasons we left the church we did was over this particular issue. A group of people who were not necessarily officers in the church, they weren't speaking with authority. They weren't representing the church council or the staff parish relations committee. Those would be the two groups in a United Methodist construct that would have the authority to formally rebuke the pastor, to intimidate him, actually, and tell him that his children were not allowed to be in the sanctuary anymore, and that no matter what the topic of worship, they needed to be in the nursery at all times, and that while some kids did leave our worship service at a planned moment where there's a children's message within the worship service itself, And then the kids have the option of going to a junior church type situation, almost an extra Sunday school hour, so that they don't have to feel the need to deal with the fidgetiness during the choral anthem and the sermon and some of the more, you know, high church aspects. And I put those in parentheses. A sermon in the United Methodist Church is not sung to you, for example. But other children are just as entitled to stay during the worship service and during the more contemporary service where there's a lot more standing, a lot more hands in the air, so to speak. It's not that unusual for the kids to wander around, to dance even, is probably the way I would describe it. This rubbed a group of church ladies, I guess might be the best descriptor I could provide, the wrong way. They didn't approach the Staff Parish Relations Committee, which is the only appropriate thing to do if you want to tell the pastor that you're going to tell him how his kids are allowed to behave on a Sunday morning. They bypassed that group. They bypassed the head of the church council, as a matter of fact. They also didn't, in this case, despite numerous calls to the district superintendent and the bishop to complain about everything from where the pastor stood to what color robes he wore, they didn't choose to take that approach here either, I think probably out of a legitimate fear that the hierarchy within the church, this one church pastor's boss and his boss's boss, wouldn't really have a whole lot of time or patience 
for someone saying that they didn't want children to participate in any aspect of Sunday worship whatsoever. So bypassing all those levels of authority, they went straight to him. Now, I told him personally, after I heard about this a few days later, that he made a serious mistake. He didn't do his job as well as his job is supposed to be done. That kind of conversation isn't forbidden, but it needs to have the Staff Parish Relations Committee representatives there so that someone can speak on his behalf. He was well and truly ambushed. It was him against a lot of people who were very hostile toward him already and chose the opportunity to speak words of hostility towards his children. And the message that they were providing was, we're sick and tired of kids standing up at inappropriate times during the worship service. They didn't find it endearing, in other words. On an occasion where this pastor might choose to step out of the pulpit, step away from the altar, and actually give his message with a mobile microphone on, standing in the midst of the congregation, literally just a couple of feet away from the first row of pews. I think his mindset, and to me it's neither here nor there, I don't find it controversial, his mindset was that he'd like to be able to give messages to the congregation as part of the congregation, and not necessarily drive everything that was spoken on a Sunday morning from him through this paradigm of I'm up here on the mountaintop, or the pulpit, if you will, uh, giving messages down to you people who are down below. And, but on occasion, when he would be standing, again, right there and just a few feet away from the front row of pews, his children would come up and stand by him, kind of hug their father while he was giving the message. We're talking about children who are ages 1, 3, and 5, for the sake of argument. Very young girls. And for whatever reason, this behavior, which I would like to think the majority of the congregation actually found to be quite endearing, this other portion of the congregation found to be so aggravating that there were threats to leave the church over it. And it led to this moment of ultimatum saying, you kids aren't allowed to be in here. Now, one of the reasons that I was so frustrated to the point of deciding, listen, I simply have to go. (laughs) I can no longer be a part of this. Is that when things finally came to a head, and the bishop's office, in the person of a district superintendent-type individual, did intervene, there was this effort of peacemaking that didn't make sense to me. I mean, Jesus is not wishy-washy on this issue. So where I was telling people from the trustees committee and you know people who were part of the, uh, the kitchen group that they were wrong in their perspective, that they were showing an audacity to stand up to Jesus Christ and tell Jesus he was wrong. Because you go to that passage in all three of the synoptic gospels where Jesus basically rebukes his disciples and says, Let's, let the children come to me. If I'm speaking, if I'm blessing other people, if I'm healing people of illness, there's no reason why kids can't be a part of that. That that's diametrically opposed to what this group of women from the church were sharing as their perspective that was non-negotiable with the pastor and his family. Jesus, I think, confronted with this particular situation, would not choose the middle path. He would not be as lukewarm as he described one of the churches in the book of Revelations as being so distastefully lukewarm that he would rather spit them out of his mouth um, than offer an opinion either way about them, that there's some churches that do things so wrong that you pity them while you're correcting them, and there's some churches that do things so right that you praise them, but to Jesus, a lukewarm church, one that can't bother to even be right or wrong well enough, didn't deserve anything more than to be expelled from his presence. 
And yet that's the course this district superintendent took, was trying to find a peacemaking middle ground, not recognizing what she had been told by members of the Staff Parish Relations Committee and the head of the church council, that we were well beyond that point, that a line had been crossed, that people had confronted this pastor's family, may or may not have even been stalking his home, trying to identify anything going on, either in the parsonage or in other aspects of his personal life, that could, could then be used to raise a case against him. If he was you know, raising his voice and yelling at his kids and they were wandering around through his backyard unbeknownst to him and overheard it, that would be justification for a call to the bishop that this person should be defrocked and should no longer be a pastor. There was a lot of that kind of behavior alleged about some of the people within the church, and certainly some of the people within the church who had the temerity to go to the pastor and confront him in an isolated sort of an ambush way and say, your kids aren't welcome to be at church when you're working. They're not welcome to be in the sanctuary while we're worshiping. We need to anesthetize our congregation from them. There's nothing wrong with these kids. Uh, They're normal as far as children aged one, three, and five go. And I think most of us who've grown up inside the church kind of know the extra pressure and extra trouble that it is being a preacher's child, that there is this extra level of expectation, even when no one goes over the top and says something inappropriate to you. But in this case, people had gone over the top and said things that were inappropriate. And rather than correcting the congregation for even having the temerity to execute this sort of ambush, the leader of that district chose to find some sort of middle ground. And I found it deeply, deeply troubling. It's not that I haven't heard this sort of talk or perceived this in our church search. We visited a variety of other churches, and one of the things I've been looking for is what is their perception and treatment of children and parents of young children? How are young families welcomed into the church? This is a big deal. The small group, the Sunday school that I led when I was in the church we left, was designed to be attractive to people who had graduated from high school. That what tends to happen in the church is that when you reach the point where you're no longer attending a high school, then you're no longer welcome to be part of the high school program. It would be viewed, perhaps by some parents rightly, as troubling if 19, 20, 21, 22-year-olds were still acting as if they were part of the youth group, that there needs to be a separation, that you don't want necessarily to have that kind of close relationship continuing to forge between people who are in their 20s and people who are in the middle of those pubescent teenage years. But the church has historically done a terrible job of finding another place for those 20-somethings. It's sometimes that, like my experience, you go off to college in a university that's more than an hour or so away, and you just don't take roots with another congregation, that there's no one actually helping you connect from your home church to any sort of satellite church. That's something you're either going to do on your own, or, as often as not, it's just not going to happen. But even for people who don't go away to college, they're commuting and staying at home while they're starting their studies, or they're actually beginning a career or an apprenticeship of some sort, to where this notion of continuing education doesn't really apply. Therefore, they're still near their home or living in their home and trying to get a career started. Most churches don't do a good enough job of offering a small group for that set of people. There are big reasons for it. I've offered a word of sympathy and a word of praise for the pastor at the church we left. We didn't leave because of him. None of the problems we encountered can be laid to his account. It was truly the congregation, which is, of course, the best reason of all for leaving. Pastors come and go. 
choir directors come and go. Anybody who's employed by the church can be, you know, unemployed, either voluntarily or at the hands of the church. It's the congregation that has to have themselves right with God. And that's kind of where things you know, fell apart. But there was a difference of opinion, I suppose, between me and this pastor, in that it might be enough to say that the kind of things which are the most crucial to be discussed in a small group, including a Sunday school hour meeting time with people who are in their 20s, are things that a lot of people in the church think should not be discussed. Over the course of the next couple of Walk the Earth episodes, I'm going to begin to hit on some of these things. But it's enough for now to say that at the time that you know a 20-something person might be starting a family and might be bringing kids into the church, even those who have wandered astray during their college years, often it's not if they've got a good faith, if their confirmation was true and real. They get married, they settle down, they have kids, and one of the things they want to do is for their kids to have the same experience as they did, so they bring their kids to church. So in this 20-something age group, we've got a huge black hole. I had more people who were more than 40 years old attending my Sunday school class that was built particularly to reach 20-somethings than anybody in that 20-something bracket. It's not that we never had people in that age group. They came and they went, but we ended up being sort of what we called ourselves unscripted because even a guideline about what age group should be attending just simply couldn't apply if this small group was to thrive. And to be honest, I really felt like a lot of the people that we did have attending who were over 40 were very much young at heart. So it worked to have a cross-generational group. And in some ways, that Sunday school class that I was leading was a safe haven for some of these families with young children. Because, as you can tell from the story I've already told, they weren't necessarily feeling particularly blessed or welcomed anywhere else inside the church building. Children were seen as a nuisance. Therefore, the parents of those children were seen as people who were at least facilitating a nuisance, if not worse. And when you do this, you do effectively chase people between the ages of 20 and 40 out of your church. And I think that's why, if we look at it statistically, we will see that many Protestant churches have that gap. That even if they have a thriving and effective youth program, that senior high school graduation doesn't take long to tail off into kids being disconnected from the church. And disconnected, we can say, well, hey, they're disconnected because they're dealing with temptations the church isn't prepared to help them with. That was my difference of opinion with the pastor at the church we left. Or it could be that they've made a decision to go in a different direction than the church's teachings and would rather not have that conflict, either directly or in their minds, by continuing to attend church while leading what could gently be described as a bohemian lifestyle. Or the church is in and of itself filled with congregational members who have chased children and their families out with no one willing or able to stand up and confront those people. And when you actually bring in the paid employees who are leading from the bishop's office down, if those people don't take advantage of the opportunity to confront and correct, well, then what do you have? Now, I've seen this done well. One of the churches that we've attended was spending time in a new place where they were guests, yeah, whether guests of another church or guests of a community facility or whatnot. And one of the elderly members of the congregation did raise what I consider to be a legitimate concern, that we're going to a place that's not ours, and we're going to be the guests of the people who are there, and it's very important that we be a positive influence. It's just a classic Christian concept of leave things better than they were when you got there. If someone loans you, you know, their snowblower, 
Don't give it back to him broken. Don't give it back to him with an empty gas tank. Return things in a better or least equal condition to where they were when they were handed to you. That's an excellent concept, and it applies in this case. And if this gentleman chose to focus a little bit too much on the risk of poor behavior at the hands of young children, I'm willing to overlook it. Because truthfully, I listened to what he had to say as a message for everybody in the congregation of all ages, not just the children, and certainly not just the parents. So it's not that there's not a point in time where asking for a certain sense of decorum makes sense. But remember the comparison to my own personal experience. What would have happened if my family had not given me an option between a Protestant church and a Roman Catholic church? What would have happened if that Catholic church had not only remained with the same attitude toward young children, but that attitude had gotten much more strict and much more severe as those children grew older? What would have happened if in those teenage years, when a child is facing many more challenges, both from within themselves, their own bodies changing, and outside with their group of peers, finds no sympathetic or supportive ear inside the church, but simply an even yet longer list of do's and don'ts, emphasis on the don'ts. It's not a wonder that some kids don't wait until they graduate from high school to walk away from the church for good. Jesus didn't tell the disciples, let the children come to me because he intended to give them a good stern talking to. The scripture passage says, Jesus said, let the children come to me because Jesus intended to bless them, which is what the parents wanted from their children, which is why their children were there in the first place. Maybe this is a stunted perception. Maybe I'm being unfair because I was quite young, not even 10 years old, when this decision was made that I was not going to pursue a course of joining the Roman Catholic Church. But my perception of that church, rightly or wrongly, was that they were never going to be supportive, that their mindset did not appear that I was a blessing to them and they wanted to bless me for being there. I was a nuisance. I was a problem. I was an accident waiting to happen. I was, at the very least, a risk, and a risk they weren't all that eager in taking. In the Protestant church, it was exactly the opposite. It was, here's one more individual who's willing to listen, willing to learn, willing to sing, willing perhaps one day to read scripture, who's paying attention, who can, at least from a child's perspective, recount what it is he has heard on that particular day. And if sometimes he hears the sermon because he slides off the pew and is sitting underneath the pew in front of him while the message is being given, isn't the most important thing that he's hearing it? And that's really the difference. Martin E. Marty is an historian. I may have referred to him previously on an inappropriate conversation. When I named Oz Guinness as a different drummer because of his book, which I shared recently on Walk the Earth, Fit Bodies, Fat Minds, When Evangelicals Don't Think and What to Do About It, Guinness, in that book, quotes Martin E. Marty, and basically his phrase is that we, as the United States, have become a nation of behaviors and no longer a nation of believers. I don't have much uh, from the author to bring that out, to flesh out that idea, so I'll just do it myself and how I interpret that phrase, because I find that phrase to be incredibly profound. And even if you go back three or four decades look at my own experience in a couple of different churches, that was really it. One church was interested, above all, in me growing up to be a behavior. I needed to learn the right things to do in the ritual and to do those things right every time. I needed to not be disruptive, not be apathetic, not be distracted, and not get it wrong. I needed to behave 
the right way. And the other church, the Protestant church, was not all that obsessed with how I behaved because as long as I was you know, paying attention and clearly picking out some of it, if at least most of the time or part of the time I was, I was in there to take from that Sunday school lesson what that Sunday school lesson was offering or take what I could as a young child from the sermon, if it, no one objected to the fact that here I was as a kid, maybe five or six years old, and communion was going on as the communion ritual, nobody was getting bent out of shape that I was asking questions like, what's the little cracker made of? Um, why do we have grape juice in the cup where the other church has something different? Why does everybody go down the center aisle and go back the end aisle? I was talking in church, doing the exact kind of talking in church that the church we recently left would have been extremely upset about. My parents attending the church that I just left might have gotten themselves a good talking to, pulled aside, because that kid of yours keeps talking during the ritual. One church, very interested in the nation of behaviors, but the church that I ended up staying with, the path I followed, was a church that was interested in a nation of believers. And, back then, really from my perspective, the Methodist church back then, far more than today, was willing to take risks, knowing that belief only comes when challenged, that faith is actually fueled by doubt, not diluted by doubt. The answers that you need to grow in your knowledge of God come from questions that you raise that perhaps in the church today, the evangelical Christian church across all denominations today, more likely to be upset that somebody has the audacity and the temerity to raise those kinds of questions. This is why the Sunday school class that I led for 20-somethings and beyond was, in some ways, kind of controversial. We were going to be willing to speak to issues that other Sunday school classes, including adult Sunday school classes, would not have touched with a 10-foot pole. But if you aren't helping answer questions about drugs, about sexuality, about business ethics, for that matter, then you're not going to be serving a flock of people who can continue to grow in their faith. Growing in your faith is all about being a believer, shutting up and doing what you're told, pretending you're better off than you are, hiding your problems, doubts, and concerns. Well, that's about being a behavior. So as the church today, we look at our responsibility toward children, and we remember the words of Jesus that says, hey, you, the mistake you can't make is leading these people astray. If one of these kids loses his faith, leaves the church, and walks away, because he perceives correctly or not that you're more interested in how he acts than blessing him in any way. That we're not trying to, you're not trying to bless people with knowledge. You're not trying to grow their faith. You're not trying to get them to connect to a greater way of living by serving others and loving as Jesus instructed if you're just telling them when to sit and when to stand and when to kneel. So when Jesus is saying, you're engaging in behaviors that is running young families and their children out of the church like you're a bunch of villagers with torches and there's some kind of Frankenstein monster who has no place within these walls. What does Jesus say? The saddest thing for me with the congregation that I left was I asked that question. I'm talking to people who had been members of that particular church, not just the Christian faith in general, but that local congregation for three or more decades. I'm talking to people who would be proud and wouldn't hesitate to tell you that they were part of the 40-year club, who when asked what Jesus would say about whether or not it's worth the risk to keep a young family with children in the church, 
than to run them out of the church because they can't behave, had no clue about what the answer really was. And when I shared the words of Jesus with them, I'm quite sure that for some of them, they doubted that I was even telling them the truth. Because it is a little bit unbelievable, somewhat out of character for Jesus of Nazareth, to turn to a group of people and say, it is better for you to have a thousand pound stone wrapped around your neck and be drowned in the deepest part of the sea than for you to be somebody who's told a kid, I don't want you hearing the word of God from the mouth of not just a preacher, but in this case, your own father. I have little trouble connecting what Jesus had to say thousands of years ago to this situation. It would be better to have a large millstone wrapped around your neck and for you to be drowned in the deepest part of the sea than to be somebody who causes one of these children to lose their faith. We create godlessness as evangelical Christians when we chase people out of the church, when decisions they made when they were at the lowest, darkest part of their life are something we're going to hold over their heads in an unforgiving way. We create the godlessness. And when we directly or indirectly or willfully or just negligently communicate to parents with young children that this is not the place for you because your young children are going to be a problem for me. And I felt like turning to some of those people and saying, hey, you've been in this church for 40 years, right? You're proud of the fact you've hit the 40-year mark or you're coming up upon your 40-year mark. Somewhere in those 40 years, your faith is so brittle, so thin, so suspect, so at risk that if one kid stands up at the wrong time and walks up to the place where the choir is singing and chooses to watch the choir sing from just a couple of feet away because he or she is so fascinated by the fact that grown adults have put on robes and elected to sing in front of everybody else, that that could shatter your faith? We're going to run that family out of the church because that behavior is so unacceptable. What's unacceptable about it? It may not be ideal. It may be endearing, depending on how you look at it, but I'll grant you that it may not be ideal, but What's the real consequences of the fact that it's not ideal? Is a 40-year member of the church going to lose their faith over how a kid behaves? Because I guarantee you, when that little kid stops going to church, now we're talking about the warnings that Jesus gave. Now we're talking about Jesus, who, by all accounts, didn't really believe in the death penalty, threatening a, an eternal death penalty, not toward the sinners out there, not toward bad parents who don't discipline their kids, not toward people who engage in sexual behavior we disagree with. Jesus really never had a lot of scornful things to say about people who found themselves on the outskirts of society because they were different, whether they were afflicted with leprosy, which a lot of people viewed as a disease that fell upon the morally deficient, or whether they were simply on the uh, the outside. They were foreigners who may have been welcomed into the community, but they were still foreigners welcomed into the community. Or they were on the low end of the socioeconomic scale, but really providing for themselves as well as they could. Or they were widows or orphans, people without the leadership of a patriarchal figure in a very heavily patriarchal society. Jesus never turned on those people and told them they were going to hell. Jesus never told anybody they were going to hell because there was something insufficient in their belief. The behavior that he spoke about wasn't people who stood up and talked during the Sermon on the Mount. It wasn't the people who weren't smart enough to bring their own food to an outdoor amphitheater where he was giving a sermon. 
bringing food into the church is a whole other animal. We'll get to that one day, maybe, perhaps. Same idea. If Jesus is so opposed to food in the sanctuary, then why did he feed 5,000 people with miraculously generated food? But no, in this case, Jesus is turning to the church people, to his own disciples, in one instance, who have decided that they're going to separate children or young families from the rest of the church because their behavior just cannot be expected to measure up to the standard It's those people who applied a human standard of decorum to what Jesus really thought was going on when people have a growing and developing faith. The disruptiveness of that, how exciting it is, how it makes people stand up and sing, sometimes out of key, sometimes at the wrong time in the wrong place, raising their hands while they're doing it in some cases, for crying out loud. Jesus had a lot more sympathy for that. He had no tolerance whatsoever. Again, even threatening a metaphorical death penalty toward the religious people who chose to exclude some from worship because they didn't meet the human standard of being truly and completely not just a Christian nation, but a Christian nation only in the sense of us being a nation of behaviors. So as I'm doing this church search, one of the things I'm watching for is the attitude toward kids. There's a particular denomination I was interested in that we walked away from pursuing. And in the next Walk the Earth, I'll, I'll talk about that denomination. But the reason why we walked away was the attitude toward children, that we could overhear things that were being said next to us and behind us in the pews when the children went up for a children's message with the pastor. And when many of those same children, though not all, left the sanctuary midway through the service to do that children's Sunday thing, And others chose to stay and hear the rest of the sermon and hear the rest of the singing. That attitude toward children to me is a disqualifier. I don't want to run the risk of being someone who is party to behavior that Jesus condemned so aggressively. If and as you are led, please join me in prayer. Father God, you've told us that We can enter the kingdom of heaven only if we enter as children. And I find that, Lord, to be completely appropriate. Because everything in your scripture teaches us that our relationship to you is parent to child. Lord, I don't trouble myself with the gender of those pronouns. I'm not worried about father versus mother, brother versus sister. But I do focus a little. And I believe I'm led to do so on the relationship between you as parent. Loving father is how it's so often described. Lord, if you want people like me to be part of your church, then I believe that you want other children at various levels of maturity, regardless their age, to be part of the church. So Lord, help me to find a church that understands that children of all ages, including some very childlike people in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, have a place in your home and should not be chased out merely because we're fallible human beings and we don't always behave. I'm trusting you, Lord, to be the ultimate behavior. And I'm asking for myself and from those with whom I worship nothing more than to follow. Amen. What happened this morning, man, I agree, it was peculiar. But water into wine, I... All shapes and sizes, Vincent. You shouldn't talk to me that way, man. If my answers frighten you, Vincent, then you should cease asking scary questions.
by Kevin McLeod. This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find more shows over at pride48.com.